Welcome to the CFO Playbook, where we bring you insights and strategies on how the many obstacles facing the heads of finance functions internationally are being tackled. I'm your host, Franz Barnost. I'm the UK content lead at Soldo. And with every episode, we help you grow your team, your company, and of course, yourself. In this episode, I talk to Chris Gaunt. Chris is the CFO practice leader at Spencer Stewart. In more colloquial terms, he is a headhunter focused specifically on finding CFOs for some of the world's biggest companies. For many aspiring CFOs and indeed current CFOs who want to climb the ladder even further, it's altogether mysterious precisely what companies want in their finance chiefs. It doesn't help that the role seems to be contorting and transforming on a yearly basis. But as an elite headhunter, Chris has the inside track on the profile and background that's in demand right now. And you may be a little surprised by what he's got to say. We also talk about what skills aspiring CFOs need to start sharpening now, about how premier businesses fill the finance role, and why you should always, always be nice to headhunters, and much, much more. Enjoy the show, and if you want to keep updated on the CFO Playbook, hit subscribe on whichever service you use to listen to your lovely podcasts. So we're joined now by Christopher Gaunt from Spencer Stewart. Christopher, how are you doing? Hi, Fran. I'm great. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Where are you exactly in the world? I'm in the wilds of Shoreditch, central London. The weather is pretty grim and looking like we've got more grimness uh, ahead of us this weekend, unfortunately. Yeah, for any of our international listeners, I'm in the UK as well. There was a brief promise of summer, but uh, the rug was very swiftly pulled from under our feet. So do feel sorry for me and Chris, and we are currently being rained on. Chris, uh, just for the sake of our guests, can you, in your own words, tell us a little bit about yourself? what you do, and yeah, where are you from? What's your story? <laughs> That's to be told over a few beers, Fran. But in, in short, my name is Chris Gaunt. I lead the CFO practice at Spencer Stewart here across uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. For the past 20 years, I've been a CFO headhunter and engaged in the leadership advisory space for boards and finance talent in particular. I grew up originally in Seattle, uh, although I've been in the UK for nearly 20 years now, and I'm a loyally converted subject of his majesty, we say now. Yeah, his majesty. Yeah, it still feels weird to say, doesn't it? So you're a bit of an interesting twist for us on the CFO playbook. Uh, we tend to have CFOs on. And the reason we invited you on is, is that, and because you would have a very interesting vantage point on this, but there seems to be a lot of change happening in the CFO space. And also there seems to be a lot of demand, almost like a labor shortage of CFOs. Is that something you're seeing? Is, is there been an increase in demand for CFOs out there in the market? What's your perspective? Yeah, listen, we're, we're finding demands hot as ever. It's driven by a few things. According to our research, uh, the average tenure of CFOs, this is specific to the FTSE 350 here in the UK, but it really applies across the board in terms of whichever in, index we're looking at. Uh, it's dropped. So just two years ago, it was 4.7 years. Uh, today, it's 4.1 years. And actually, if you look at those who were newly appointed in the past 18 months, 84 out of the FTSE 350 are new to their role, which is even more than one quarter when you strip out the investment trusts and the other entities that don't have a CFO. So, so even that 4.1 year tenure is coming down further. So you've got, you've got shorter tenure and you've got 
other structural forces such as private equity taking more and more companies out of the public public sphere and, and often driving uh, CFO appointments um, on their own. I guess we'll call it a bit of a shortage or, or an increase in job hopping. When did it start? Was it was it something that, that has its origin as so many sectoral and societal shifts during the pandemic or was it something that's been a long time coming? Now, look, there's always been demand for CFOs. And I think, you know, it's perhaps a truism to say that in a capitalist system, access to capital and all things finance is inevitably going to be integral to a company's ability to sort of grow and to deliver on their strategy. But what's different now is I think there's a real appreciation in the corporate world of the true impact CFOs can have. It's much broader than just raising capital. It's much broader than the basics of managing a finance organization. So, We're seeing CFOs more than ever called on to be transformation drivers, reducing costs, uh, streamlining services across their organization. And that's, again, it's beyond finance, right? So we're seeing that in broader business services. We're seeing finance and CFOs at the cutting edge. They're often the incubator for cutting edge technology. And I mean, AI and robotics, it's not unusual that they'll be the guinea pig within a company for uh, sort of all things tech. You've got this you know, lowering tenure, you've got a, a mismatch between supply and demand curves in the market. Our data show that companies still strongly prefer proven sitting group CFOs, both public and private. And to speak candidly, the, the dirty little secret that almost no one is openly addressing is that most companies have and want to maintain the optionality of having a male, usually white CEO. And as more companies rightly become aware of and focused on the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's creating a bit of a laser focus on the CFO role more than almost any other membership of an executive committee to be diverse in order to maximize the optionality for companies to have a diverse or a non-diverse CEO. So that's also a bit of a factor that's driving much of the change we're seeing in the market. It's an interesting one because I mean, like, you know, speaking as an observer, in my mind, and I guess many other people's minds also, the CFO in particular is the stereotypical white guy, sort of gray-suited, salt and pepper hair sort of fellow. And you're talking now about sort of finding CFOs from different different backgrounds. Is that a challenge for you as a headhunter in terms of your clients, in terms of having to kind of broaden their mindset a little bit in terms of where they can find potential CFOs? So first of all, Fran, we're seeing a real generational change. And I think that classic, whatever whatever stereotype we want to use, the you know, green lampshade kind of CFO of the past has gone the way of the, the dodo. The reality is even the, the heteronormative white male CFOs today are actually much more progressive, much more inclusive leaders than we've seen historically. So you are seeing a real sort of generational evolution. The reality, too, is, of course, there is real change in terms of diversity. So we're seeing within the FTSE 100, we've got 17 female CFOs now. We have 12 uh, who are are ethnically diverse. Incidentally, we're seeing some of the larger companies be more progressive in terms of making those changes than the smaller companies. So that's the FTSE 100. If you look down the FTSE 250, there are only 19 female CFOs in the 250s. There are 12 in, in the top 100 and then the 19 in the bottom 250. There, there are only six ethnically diverse CFOs in the FTSE 250. So I think what we're seeing is generational change, diverse change at the top that's then, then filtering down to smaller companies and, for instance, you know, really starting the public markets and then translating through to uh, private equity-backed and other private corporates as well. The preference still is largely for proven group CFOs 
often from the same industry that uh, you know a company is is hiring from. So the challenge then in terms of the supply is that when you add on top of a diversity lens is that there simply aren't that many who tick that box. So when we're working with clients to help solve their CFO needs, when we hear this, look, we don't have time to train anyone. We just want someone who's proven a role, who comes from our sector. Oh, but by the way, this time we'd like to be an ethnically diverse woman or, or you know, whatever, whatever DE&I lens they want to apply. What we do is, is we help them kind of break that down into, you know, why do you feel you need this? Let's look at its constituent parts. And then they might be surprised that actually you can find people who aren't yet group CFOs, but they do have experience running PLs. They have experience driving group-wide change in the finance function. They have, they're, they're strategic operators. They have experience interacting with investors and the board. And actually, that opens up uh, to a pool of first-time CFOs. Those people are out there. Absolutely, they do exist. This opens up uh, a pool of, of diverse candidates uh, as well. And I'd also add anecdotally that when you then fast forward a few years, we're often hearing from those organizations that hired one of those quote unquote step up first time CFOs that they took a, you know, again, a so-called risk on appointing, they'll often tell us that was the best hire they ever made. I think there might be something around kind of being hungry and people going above and beyond to prove themselves when it's their first time in the job. I think that accounts for a bit of that. One of the, I guess, core audiences for this podcast is people that are, it's called CFO of Labor, but it, we also find that uh, there are people that are sort of on that that pathway towards uh, CFO, sort of financial controllers and so on. You know, we always talk about internally CFO minus two, so like two, two rungs down on, and, and up. It's a conversation, it's a, and it's a tricky one. I've had it before with different CFOs about sort of how did you get where you are? And often it's like, often just like, oh, better luck or whatever. But it'd be interesting to know from your perspective, what sort of qualities are companies looking for in CFOs? Like what sort of skills do aspire people that are aspired to be CFOs? What skills, sort of skills do, do, do they need to be sharpening now in order to be a relevant candidate in like five years time or whatever? Yeah, friend, that's a great question. And listen, we should we should sort of bifurcate between experiential requirements and also the capabilities and competencies that are sought after. And they're both equally important, to be honest. The experiential requirements are changing a little bit. So the, the greatest change we're seeing there, and this is really looking across European indices, is that the percent of CFOs who are qualified accountants is dropping. It's dropping quickly. So it's it's 36% today, but that's down from 44% just 10 years ago. The UK is, is an outlier globally. So historically, almost every single CFO in the UK was an accountant. It was 84% in 2014. Today, it's 75%. So it's not yet the minority, but to those who are aspiring to be a CFO, 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, you have to go get an accounting qualification, right? That's like the core starting step in your career. And that's increasingly less important. That said, the finance experience within companies is almost unchanged. So when we look at group CFOs, 55% of them previously held a big divisional or regional, some sort of large P&L, depending on the structure of their company. So they were CFO for Europe or CFO for that global business unit. And then 44% of them were group controller. So we find kind of the magic combo is typically those two major experiences, something at group level, probably group controller could be something else, 
and that big P&L ownership and, and partnering with a, a CEO or, or general manager of a business. So that kind of core experience is unchanged. The one thing, by the way, I'd like to throw in there is, is a lot of people, a lot of aspiring CFOs and a lot of companies hiring CFOs place a little bit of an undue emphasis on experience with investor relations. And our data continue to show that that is not based in the reality of the backgrounds of CFOs, either historically or currently. So only 9% of all CFOs across Europe had any formal investor relations responsibility at any point previously in their career. That's often the piece that people are told, oh, you've got to get this experience if you want to be a CFO. And and the data simply just don't bear that out. In terms of kind of the broader competencies and broader skills that the one needs to to develop, we recently interviewed over 50 CFOs in all sorts of different industries. We interviewed them around, you know, how is the world changing and what does the CFO of the future look like? We published a uh, an article on the basis of that, anybody can access it on the, the Spencer Stewart website, is called CFO of the Future. Nearly everyone we interviewed agreed that the role is changing. They did emphasize there's some, some traditional themes that aspiring CFOs need to be good at. They need to be close advisors and business partners to the CEO. They need to have proven that they've built a business or you know helped transform or turn around a business with a leader of that business. They need to be the core steward of financial health. That hasn't changed um, in, in many, many years. Strong communication skills. Again, that, that hasn't changed. What is starting to change is, is the communication skills mean interacting credibly on a, a broader range of topics, right? So ESG, transition to net zero. These themes are landing squarely in the lap of the CFO. that CFOs of even 10 years ago literally never had to think about. Then we're also seeing that there is a, an increasing preference for CFOs who have, have accumulated experience outside of finance. So more and more companies are hiring CFOs who, who have worked outside the function. The, the stat today is, is 60%. And just a couple of years ago, just four years ago, that was only 50%. So that's, that's clearly a, a growing trend. So one key piece of advice that we would give anybody who is aspiring to move up the ladder is Expose yourself more broadly across the business. That could be get involved in a SAP implementation. That could be um, sit on a an ESG working group, or it could indeed mean move into marketing for a couple of years. Go try your hand in in uh, supply chain. You know something else that gives you broader experience outside the function. And then you might choose that you don't ever want to come back to finance, and that's perfectly okay too. But if you do come back, it will make you. Uh, better suited to uh, to be a leader in the function. So I think that's probably the most most important piece of advice. The other thing too, and this is everywhere you go now, technology is a key a key theme. So it's not necessarily unique to CFOs, but it's different from a few years ago, where a real focus on technology, really embracing and understanding technology, is more important than ever in the finance function. And we still rarely encounter. CFOs who are truly au fait with cutting-edge technology. And this is something that is changing so fast and is also a way that kind of younger, next-generation CFOs can differentiate themselves from sort of prior generations who, who for whom technology was not as, as central to the role, is to become, you know, become really technologically savvy. 
young aspiring CFOs. I've had this conversation with my own brother, who's a CFO of the US. I, when he was coming up the chain, I said, don't go to that accounting conference. If you've got two spare days to, to go attend a conference, go learn about AI and robotics, because that's going to be more important in terms of, in terms of your future in, in five or 10 years. And I, I would say exactly the same thing to, uh, to anyone over here looking to, uh, to move up to the, the top job. You referenced something really interesting there about the sort of um, increasing, I suppose that they were always close, but the, the much closer proximity now in relationship between the CFO and the CEO. And I guess the sort of economic downturn has really sort of exacerbated that even further because, you know, they need to be talking to each other constantly. Obviously, that comes with its challenges. That, and I guess especially for many younger people that are wanting to step into the role and also people that are less experienced. A lot of CEOs are they're tough, they're tough characters. <laughs> is that something that is a challenge for you as a headhunter? I mean, because if you're dealing with a CEO, that's quite a quite a tough character. And I guess... Having that ability to deal with someone who's a strong personality, is that an essential prerequisite for a modern CFO? Yeah, Fran, I mean, listen, I'm not about to come on here and say CEOs are all challenging characters because I certainly um, <laughs> really like and enjoy virtually every CEO I've ever had the privilege of working with. But what I would volunteer is that obviously you need a certain stiffness, uh, you know, a certain toughness of character to survive sort of co- battering and the loneliness that is involved in being a CEO. I won't dispute that. I would say that we're seeing, again, an evolutionary change where the command and control type of CEOs of of yesteryear um, are simply no longer in vogue. Um, And and what we've seen, and, and the COVID crisis amplified this, is that CEOs today, more than ever, have to demonstrate real empathetic, inclusive leadership. So I think you're seeing a very different type of CEO. And and in fact, the personality type that is is now excelling as a CEO is often more reflective of the types of skills that CEOs have have held perhaps in greater abundance, right? Uh, Managing through events, you know, leading whilst not requiring the limelight. So if anything, I think that the factor of needing to stand up to really tough, strong characters is less uh, of the dynamic today, but being a complement to the CEO is as strong as ever, whatever form that can take, right? So often the CEO in many entrepreneurial kind of earlier stage businesses, the CEO is incredibly strategic and coming up with a hundred ideas a day. And in some of those, like one CFO joked with me once, he said, the CEO is a visionary. He comes up with 100 ideas a day. And my job is to tell him 99 of those will land us in prison or send us into bankruptcy. But that one, that is a genius idea. And here's how we implement it. So kind of recognizing, focusing, and then actually driving through the operational implementation of, of some of those, that strategic vision can be a key kind of complementary uh, role of the CFO. You actually operate in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. That's actually an interesting mix of of different regions. And and I'd be curious to know, like, is there any one of those particular one regions that seems to be booming right now in terms of a demand for sort of high-class financial professionals? I personally work all over the world, typically on our our largest uh, CFO assignments, whether they be in the US or Australia or Europe. Uh, The practice I lead within Spencer Stewart is the people who are 
who are based within in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Um, it's less that there are specific booming regions. Of course, there are pockets. You know, Saudi Arabia is thriving uh, as ever. China is a little bit softer than in years past. So, but rather than getting into kind of geopolitical, um, you know, game of risk <laughs> or, or whatever, what I would emphasize is that we are seeing more companies seeking true international experience. And that means time on the ground, having lived in a country, I've done it myself, I've lived in four countries, you know, the experience of moving into an apartment, grocery shopping, learning a new language, it's real and it's different from just going to Terminal 5 at Heathrow, you know, quite often uh, with your roller bag. So there's a real recognition of true international experience and increasingly for the senior most roles, we're seeing that be a, be a requirement. Um, so I might add that to my kind of advice to aspirational CFOs is for those of you who, who haven't yet gone uh, overseas, uh, if you're given the chance, jump at it. And in fact, it's often easier to jump at it early in your career before you settle down with a spouse or partner, before you maybe have children, before you have a mortgage, you know, the things that end up kind of rooting one in place. And there's a and there's a wide world out there, man. Like I spoke to someone recently who um, they weren't quite a CFO, but they were kind of really climbing that ladder. They were British. They got a lot of their key experience working in Jakarta in Indonesia. And he said that, yeah, it was great in terms of it's an enormous country. It's a dynamic economy. And it's not something that I think people would often think about. But yeah, it, you're right. I think it's very easy to kind of just get stuck in our mindsets in terms of where we are now, literally, geographically, isn't it? Well, one thing I'd add too, and this is uh, not necessarily evident to a lot of people, but again, if you're aspiring to the top job, that ex- the sort of breadth of experience of being an enterprise leader and, and really having to think about a company beyond the core finance function is critically important. And when you look at a lot of big global companies in some of the smaller, especially the emerging markets, they have listed businesses in their own right. So if it's Unilever in India, Hindustan Unilever is a listed company. If it's uh, Diageo in Nigeria, that is a publicly traded, locally headquartered company. So you can often do rotations, even staying within the large global mothership, where you're actually then in an independent public company that is still, you know, has a significant majority shareholding uh, from the parent. But you will have your own board of directors. You'll have your own share register that you're potentially dealing with in terms of investor relations, you'll be getting that holistic end-to-end company de facto group CFO experience, even as part of your global rotation. So that too is is an opportunity that uh, that many people, especially within the leading FMCG or you know oil majors, you, you name it, leading global, global organizations can get. Another interesting thing I, I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast would be uh, curious about is the process of how a company like Spencer Stewart would operate in terms of you get a client that says they were looking for a CFO. What does that search look like? How does that start? How do you get going? How do you find people? What's your what's your process? The dark arts. <laughs> the dark arts. Let us let us know your secrets. Well, it's interesting. When I started in this business, Fran, 20 plus years ago, um, LinkedIn didn't exist, right? So the added value of headhunters was we have the names. That is a zero value add. Now, you know, coming up with the names is not uh, not anything unique that the search community can do, and it's not um, necessarily helpful. The difference is around 
the management of the process, which is multifold, largely on the client side, right? That means alignment. I'm often navigating this sort of triangulation between a chair and a CEO and a head of HR and then chair of a audit committee, all four of whom might want radically different things, their CFO. So, so often it's a bit of getting everyone to agree on, on where the company's going and you know, what kind of uh, leader in, in the finance function you, you need. So it's sort of figuring out the spec up front. In terms of the, the candidate pool, we can all find you on LinkedIn. Sometimes it is a really precise, finite remit. You know, we're a mining listed FTSE 100 mining company. We only want to hire someone who has been a mining company, PLC Group CFO. If it's that tight a spec, it's a pretty straightforward process for us, uh, just in terms of identifying the very, very small number of people that might be. Whether or not the answer actually sits within there is a different question. And some of the most fun searches I've ever worked on have been with a company and, and a few, you know, very large, very well-known public companies where it's seemingly the spec is really narrowly defined up front. They go through the process of meeting those four or five people who perfectly match that spec. And then you reach a point in the process where they say, yeah, these people can all do the job, but no one's really inspiring us. So what if we just give you permission to think creatively? And that's when it gets really fun. And that's where it's really helpful for us to have pre-existing relationships with a broad range of people so that we're able to say, okay, here's this guy who only ticks one out of the 10 criteria on your spec, but he's phenomenal. And he's such an impressive leader. And he's this next generation diverse talent. But it often requires an organization going through the process of, of seeing what they believe to be the the obvious candidates, and then opening up and thinking more creatively. In terms of the people listening to this podcast who, who are wondering, how, how do I make sure that Spencer Stewart and, and its competitors are, are putting me on their list? The best advice I can give is be nice to headhunters. <laughs> if we call you asking for ideas, you know, slamming down the phone on us is not a helpful way to make sure that you, uh, that you get warm and fuzzy thoughts when, when uh, the board of directors of a company for which you would be qualified uh, and interested um, is asking what you're like. But it might be helpful. I, I mean, you know, if we call up and say, do you have any ideas? You know, everybody likes someone who goes out of their way to help. But the other thing too, and this may sound really obvious, but we have CVs, we read CVs every day for a living and, and um, can write them in our sleep. If a headhunter sends, calls you about something and it's a job you're interested in and sends you the spec, what I find really helpful is when somebody writes me back and says, listen, it's probably not obvious from my CV, but these three things in particular in the spec that they're looking for, here's when I've done it the most successfully. And doing that helps us help you. Sometimes it is as clear an omission as somebody says, it's not on my CV, but by the way, I was on the board of this bank 10 years ago, you, you know, sometimes it is a, a major experiential thing that needs to be captured. But more often than not, it's a demonstration of thoughtfulness. And, and um, it's, it's, again, it's helping, helping the search community position you in the best possible light with that, that client. And that's, that, that's how you can help yourself get a, you know, get a foot in the door. But then there's an element of, we can bring the horse to water. <laughs> but at, at some point, at some point, the interview, the meeting, the chemistry, that's all, that's all down to you and them. 
the point around being just being nice. I mean, like it's like my mom always said, it's it's nice to be important, but it's important to be nice. You know, it like it really does pay off. It's a a personal element to success that I think people sometimes forget about when they're when they're very ambitious. Chris, it's been it's been fascinating talking to you. I um I, I guess this is the final question. I I'd be interested to know whether there is a you can anonymize it, of course, but whether there's a search. Uh, that you found particularly fascinating or one that you're particularly proud of? Apropos of what we were talking about earlier with Britvic uh, a a few years ago, the listed beverages business here, I helped them understand that breaking down the constituent parts that somebody who was not yet a a proven group CFO could indeed uh, have ticked those boxes and that's exactly what they found in, in Joanne Wilson, who we hired out of Tesco at the time. She was the CFO of Dunhumby. Uh, Joanne has done a phenomenal job at, at Britvic, and it was announced very recently that she's moving on to WPP, the, the world's largest advertising uh, company, as their new group CFO. So Joanne's outstanding in her own right. That was, a, I think, a, a great example of a company being willing to not insist on a proven group CFO and, and a candidate who had carefully managed her career to make sure she, she had covered nearly everything that a, that a group CFO will end up having to having to cover. That must be immensely satisfying for you to be able to kind of watch people kind of go on with their careers and really kick on and um, sometimes even move into like CEO positions. And like there's that pipeline from CFO to CEO now, isn't there? It must be like a really satisfying aspect of your job. Yeah, it's great fun. I, I love what I do. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have been doing it for so long. But uh, it's hard work, much harder than anyone um, who hasn't been in search uh, ever seems to uh, to estimate. But um, it's very, very rewarding. But Fran, you said a moment ago, so, so the CFO CEO pipeline, we haven't touched on that much. There is a little bit of a perception that it's changing, and we're not actually seeing that. So it's the percentage... Okay. Of CEOs who are former CFOs within the FTSE 100, for instance, is 20 of them uh, are former C- CFOs. Mm. Um, it's it's relatively flat. The one thing mm. I would say there is um, CFOs do stand a good chance of becoming CEO. It varies by industry, right? And some finance is more important, and some it's you know sales and marketing yeah. references are, are more important. But being sector agnostic, the one thing I would say is that when a CFO does become a CEO. It is almost always within his or her or their current company. It is very, very rare for a CFO in one company to go become a CEO in a different company for lots of reasons. But but for anyone who's aspiring to be a CEO, I would say do what you can to accomplish that within your own your own organization. The classic is always sort of the CFO steps in, especially as the interim. Uh, if the post is vacated or whatever, but yeah, it's interesting you mentioned it, and because it's, I guess there was a like there is a little bit of like a perception that like oh yeah it's changing, but I can completely see how how that is because I mean the it's it's more common for like CMOs and sort of um, CTOs and stuff like that yeah moving into the CEO position. That depends on the sector, right? So in insurance, it might be much more likely that a CFO would become CEO. We, there are several examples of that, but in in you know uh, consumer businesses that are really driven by sales and marketing, it's probably more likely someone will have come up that route. Or if it's a technology company, you know a CTO might be better better positioned. It, it really depends uh, widely on sector. But but listen, CFOs, many of them have made outstanding CEOs. Many outstanding CFOs have also made very average CFOs, CEOs, excuse me. And I think that's an important consideration. So I would say the the majority of 
really good CFOs that I meet uh, and know enjoy the job so much that they would rather move to a, a new company in a radically different industry for a new form of stimulation and intellectual challenge than to necessarily pursue the CEO route. But that's not to say it's the same drivers for everybody. That is one of the wonderful benefits of being a CFO is that like you said the terms, it's so sector agnostic. You can hop from industry to industry. You're not sort of bound. I mean, you're, well, within limits, obviously people want would need to want to hire you. And there's obviously people want to experience certain sectors. But I mean, like nominally speaking, yeah, you could be in one sector and then take a job in another sector and so on. It's an amazing kind of, uh, you can create a, like an amazing career, really interesting career as well, like operating in different companies. You know, friend, it's funny. I'm I'm definitely a big believer in the transferability and sort of portability of the, the finance skill set. We did a, a piece of work several years back now um, on that. We sort of started with the premise that it is possible to change between sectors because there, there are plenty of examples. And, and what was interesting, after interviewing a lot of people and really thinking carefully about this issue, we came to the conclusion that it's not just possible, sometimes it's preferable. And the number of examples especially turnaround situations where a CFO comes in from a completely different industry and asks the quote-unquote stupid questions that turn out not to be so stupid. And when they hear, you know, when the answer is, oh, well, this is how we always do it in the aviation sector. Well, that CFO, because they don't come from the sector, they can say, well, I don't care. It's a bad way of doing things. So we're going to change it. And especially if the company's going through transition or, you know, that could be kind of scaling up in the next stage of their growth. It could be complicated turnarounds. I find CFOs, you know, from outside who bring that fresh perspective can be, um, can be very healthy and very effective leaders of change. Asking stupid questions is a little bit of a superpower, I believe. Like, I mean, so my own background is in the humanities. I studied history. And I moved into sort of financial journalism and science journalism and with that sort of humanities background in tow. And I've done all right for myself, mainly just because like I just kind of stumble in situations and go like, what's that? What does this do? Someone explain this to me. What does that do? I think if you're really, really, really immersed in something, there's a lot of assumptions that happen. That's not necessarily always the best thing, especially when we're facing sort of crises and different spiraling issues and geopolitical issues and stuff like that. It's so unpredictable. There's a sort of intellectual humility that I think is uh, is very important. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And also that sort of pattern recognition. So you, know, you studied history and what's the saying? History doesn't repeat itself. It sure does rhyme. So I think there's an element, you know, an element of that often within the corporate world that, that CFOs with sophisticated pattern recognition can develop and can kind of transfer from sector to sector. Christopher, it's been wonderful speaking with you. It's been fascinating also just to get a bit of a different vantage point on the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. If our listeners would like to connect with you, uh, where's the best place to get in touch, to speak to you, to hear your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Fran. The easiest way is to go to our website, Spencer Stewart, and, and just look me up, Chris Thorns, and you should be able to send me a, a contact there. Lovely. Thank you very much, Chris. Have a good one. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Cheers. This show is brought to you by Soldo the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel your growth. Learn more at soldo.com.